Good morning and welcome, everybody, to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Del Marva Public Radio. Martin O'Malley has announced his candidacy for President of the United States. He's in part positioning himself as the environmental candidate in the Democratic primary. He also positions himself as the only candidate with executive experience as one who fought for and passed legislation to act on climate change, pushing for smart growth, and cleaning up the Chesapeake Bay. Did he? Well, we'll let you decide as we join Tommy Landers of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network and former State Senator Gerald Weingrad as they discuss Martin O'Malley's environmental legacy. Then we have a conversation about a very controversial gas pipeline that plans to traverse Baltimore and Harford counties across many water paths that gives us the water that we drink in Baltimore City and County, and it's also spawning ground for many local endangered trout. We'll be talking with Gunpowder Riverkeeper Theo Lagarder. And New Zealand passed a law recognizing animals as sentient beings. We close our hour today with an intense conversation with some animal rights activists about what this means. That's all coming up today on the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites. And uh, we begin our conversation today talking about Martin O'Malley. And Governor Martin O'Malley, who's uh, seeking to become the President of the United States, one of the ways he is um, pushing his candidacy, which some people say is to the left, is talking about his being a climate hawk, that he has been uh, fighting for climate change from the beginning and has uh, set greenhouse gas emissions by 25% uh, for 2020. Uh, here in the state of Maryland, smart growth he's touted. He's touted what he's done for the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, he's been saying that he is the environmental president. So we are going to wrestle with that with our two guests. Tommy Landers joins us, who is the Maryland and D.C. policy director for the Chesapeake Climate Action, Action Network. And Gerald Weingrad, who is an attorney at some professor at University of Maryland School of Public Policy. Uh, and uh, he is also, of course, former Maryland state senator who was known as the environmental conscience of the state legislature when he was there. Uh, and um, Tommy and Gerald, welcome. Good to have you both with us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, Tommy, let's begin with you. I mean, I, we, we've had folks on from your group a lot over the years and you as well. And um, uh, this is, so, so he's been pushing himself as the environmental candidate. Is this justified from your perspective? Well, I think you referred to the phrase climate hawk. I mean, I would certainly call Martin O'Malley climate hawk as well. Um, and as you know, our, our group doesn't endorse candidates or anything. No, no, I know that. I think, this is pure political yeah. analysis from your perspective. Right. Yeah, I, I think he's um, clearly done um, the, you know, some of the best work I've seen across the country um, and within the past you know, recent history of Maryland to make climate change a front and center issue and to set those goals and to track that progress in meeting the goals. Um, you know, every we haven't loved everything he's done for sure, but I think when it comes to those, you know, the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Act that you mentioned in 2009. I mean, he started off with the Clean Cars Bill in 2007, and then the the next year he ramped up the um, the clean electricity standard for the state, and then we had you know a few years later we had offshore wind. Um, you know, I think year after year, um, Governor, former Governor O'Malley has done a great deal to move the state forward on climate policy and increasing efficiency and uh, increasing clean energy. So on that level, um, Joe Weingrad, I mean, is, is it hard to argue that Martin O'Malley has done his work on climate change? I think overall he has made climate change an issue, and he's to be commended for that. I mean, some of the actions that he's taken uh, don't merit national praise or particular uh, California-style reductions. Um, a lot of it's been set off for the future when he's out of office, And 
and with the exception of a few initiatives, particularly with the utilities having to gain a 15% reduction in setting up a environmental fee that we all pay on our bills to help achieve that through energy conservation, um, I don't see the really bold actions. I think that 2009 Act referred by Tommy was one of the things I call a nothing burger. It said that it can't affect any economic segment negatively. If it does, uh, then they can't take actions to reduce uh, greenhouse gases, and it's all to be reviewed again. I think it was in 2017 where you had to come back and review all of the reductions that they were supposed to achieve to see if, in effect, they were hurting any segment of, of the economy. So one of the tests, for instance, that the environmentalists were totally against and testified against was a bill in 2011 that would count burning trash and incinerators towards the actual goals for alternative energy in the state. And the environmental community, I think Dami was one of them, vigorously opposed that legislation. And at the last minute, after a veto hearing, he uh, decided to sign the bill the same day that he agreed to sign the bill to make trash burning equal to solar or wind energy and alternative energy. Um, he received a donation for the Democratic Governors Association, which he chaired on his way to the March for the Presidency, of $100,000 from Energy Answers International, which happened to be the company that wanted to build the waste energy plant in Baltimore that would be benefit significantly by these credits. And that's the type of thing that I see with his movement. Everything was gauged to running for president. And if it helped his cred with those donations to the Democratic Governor Association and with his fellow colleagues that he went out and spent the money on around the United States, that's what went down. So, so Tommy, before we turn to another area around this, I'd like you to comment on what Gerald just said, just in, in terms of the, the, the analysis of, 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 of playing politics and money when it comes to environmental decisions. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't disagree, you know, with a lot of that. Um, and it was, yeah, I was one of the folks among many others who were fighting against that bill in 2011. And that was a deep disappointment. You know, we pushed hard to kill the bill in the first place and then to encourage Martin O'Malley not to sign the bill, to veto the bill. Um, and he didn't. And, you know, Gerald, like Gerald said, there was the exchange of money and uh, or giving of money. And that was unfortunate. And I mean, in terms of what's actually happening on the ground, fortunately, uh, Mark, as you know, in Baltimore, the, there's a proposed incinerator that has been um, lingering for a long time, and you know, hopefully, it's not going to happen at all. Uh, we've been fighting for against that for a long time. Um, so, despite that bad bill, you know, hopefully, the, the work that's done on the ground, like by Free Your Voice and other amazing groups, um, will you know prevent incinerators from from blossoming in Maryland. But you know, I, I know I wouldn't disagree with what Gerald was saying. But but you would say before we get to the next the next subject that that I mean <clears throat> for the most part when we've talked to Mike Tidwell and others um, that that there's a general support that Martin O'Malley has done his job on climate change and of course Gerald was talking about where maybe he has not I mean so I, I, I just overall before I get into a very specific question about <clears throat> our bay and, and what's happening to Chesapeake Bay um, I mean how would you how would you grade this administration I would, I mean, I would give him a good grade. You know, I think that uh, he, like I said, I listed those bills that he's done. I mean, and the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Act, by the way, the 2009 bill, it does um, expire, you know, next year. And that's going to be a big uh, priority for us and many other groups is to renew that bill to, to make sure we're, we stay on track to achieve those science-based 
absolutely necessary reductions. You know, I would also say certainly that when it comes to fracking or, or Cove Point, you know, we, we were definitely disappointed, right? I mean, um, we have not, uh, we, we have fought against some of the things that um, Martin O'Malley tried to do. And uh, when it came to Cove come to Point, you know, we were hoping that he would stand up against it and demand at least a uh, thorough environmental investigation uh, of that proposed facility, the liquefied natural gas export facility in Southern Maryland. Um, but, you know, I think in, in the sum total of what he's done, I think he has positioned Maryland to be a, a national leader, which is very important for encouraging Congress to make progress. Uh, he hired amazing people along the way, like Abby Hopper, who now is in the president's, uh, President Obama's uh, staff. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, you know, we were much better off in terms of climate change because of Martin O'Malley. And, and I do want to jump into the Chesapeake Bay here, which I think is a critical area to talk about. But, Jerry, Gerald, do you want to have a quick thought on that? Well, to, to, to end that commentary, uh, it's also notable that many of the environmentalists fought the takeover of Constellation Energy, BG&E, by uh, Exelon, and Martin O'Malley actually supported that with a lot of conditions eventually, and the Democratic Governors Association received $250,000 from Exelon Corporation, the Chicago-based group, from the to the uh, Democratic Governors Association during the six months preceding um, the merger, et cetera. And that was all, all of this was noted in the Baltimore Sun, and they editorialized on how um, rotten this all was with this money changing hands. And there was also money given uh, concerning offshore energy, the wind thing that never happened with great subsidies over a billion dollars in taxpayers' money because it's just not efficient, it's just not cost effective. Uh, two groups contributed uh, one thirty-five thousand, the other fifty thousand offshore wind companies to the DGA, which he succeeded in uh, running up record amounts of money in two years, which is really hard for a Democratic governor to keep beyond one year. And this kind of launched them into the presidential bid. So that's what I see now. The final thing is on energy. Um, I don't know whether Tommy will agree or disagree, but um, with his position, but he knows that Martin O'Malley was an outspoken supporter of expanding the uh, and building a third nuclear reactor at Calvert Cliffs. And he supported congressionally giving the subsidies, the large congressional subsidy, to keep a loans guaranteed because of the potential liability of that third reactor that was going to be built by a French company with a state-of-the-art design that would use 99% less water. It would be linear. You already have the disturbance in the power lines down at Calvert Cliffs. And I happen to fully support that support that. And if you wanted to drop climate change down um, a notch and reduce greenhouse gases, nuclear is the is the uh, answer right now until we can fully get to energy conservation and solar and wind energy, which will take quite a few decades from now. And uh, I, know, I know the environmentalists don't like, most of them don't like that. Many of the groups have come over to nuclear energy. Tommy, very quickly on that, I do want to get to the Bay. Yeah, well, nuclear energy is, you know, I think fair to say a pretty controversial issue among environmentalists. I mean, CCAN for ourselves, we don't, um, I think we're pretty neutral when it comes to nuclear. Uh, you know, we do have some concerns about it, as others do, but uh, as Gerald said, it, you know, it's not putting carbon into the air. Um, we're not going to be out there fighting for new nuclear plants. I mean, we're, our, our focus is to um, make sure that the solar and wind industries get a strong foothold 
um, as they have been over the past few years and develop as quickly as possible. Um, and I would say quickly on offshore wind, I mean, um, Gerald, none of that money that, that you mentioned, the billion dollars or whatnot, none of that is going to be spent until a project, uh, knock on wood, actually gets built. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's part of the puzzle in terms of expanding clean energy. And I think over the next few decades, you know, we do need to tap into that tremendous source that we have on the East Coast between North Carolina um, and, and up, you know, up and down the coast. I think we need to tap into that. So let's move to the Bay. I mean, one of the, one of the issues here, and Gerald, let me let you start off, and then we'll, and we'll go over back to Tommy. I mean, I think that one of the controversial parts of of, of governor when when Martin Malley was governor uh, had to do with um, had to do with the Bay, had to do with the the chicken industry and the water. Yeah, that's the litmus test. You know, um, the governor, former governor O'Malley, for eight years really declined to really go after and solve the problem of so much manure being dumped on uh, lands um, produced by the hundreds of millions of chickens that are produced on the Delmarva Peninsula every year in particular. And he failed until the very end, his last month, and and then dropped in a regulation which Hogan succeeded in overturning because he waited to the last minute and dropped it on the new governor, um, which many in the farm industry had come around to support because it was so weakened it wouldn't even come into full effect for all the farms dumping this uh, excess manure on already phosphorus-saturated soils until 2022. And so this was when he proposed it. it was December of 2014. So he had, they had eight years. And this was a, something that he had pledged and his administration had pledged in the pollution reduction diet uh, dictated by the Clean Water Act to the EPA that they would implement in 2013. Every time the Farm Bureau and Purdue and the chicken industry objected, the administration to the Department of Agriculture blew took back these regulations and there's when he finally issued them he said there's no greater source of phosphorus pollution than this uh, this chick excess chicken manure being dumped on soils that shouldn't be getting any more phosphorus because they're already saturated with phosphorus and he totally fumbled the ball on that issue despite the entreaties of the top agricultural scientist at the University of Maryland a top agricultural scientist that I work with and senior scientist for the bay and really crippled our ability to cost-effectively reduce these nutrients because on eastern shore rivers, that is the dominating source. It's from agriculture, and in many systems, it's because of the manure coming from so many chicken operations. Tommy, I mean, that, I mean, this is this is I mean, one of the issues that this is the other side of the coin that we're talking about in terms of climate, and we can argue back and forth about climate, but. But the, the the issue of the the phosphorus management tool, how that was kind of put off, and until the governor, the, we've got Governor Hogan, um, that the kind of non-payment by the large chicken industry, the KFOs, for paying the money that they were supposed to pay uh, to to the state government, we, that was never enforced. I mean, there's a real spotty record here. Well, that's true. And, I mean, Mark, I think, as you know, CCAN um, hasn't worked that much directly on this issue, but my, in my personal experience, um, I think you knew my former boss, Brad Hebner, we worked at Environment Maryland. Yes. And, yeah, and uh, he and I, I think, were a couple of folks that worked very closely on this early on in 2010, along with Gerald and others, and the scientists that he mentioned. Um, and, you know, it's been, it's been a long, frustrating uh, road to hoe here. Um, and, uh, you know, but I think it's, it, it does speak to broader systemic issues in terms of 
um, the agricultural industry. I mean, we just saw President Obama put out this clean water rule, right? And you have um, the Farm Bureau and others saying that this is going to regulate every puddle, um, I don't know, every drop of water that ever existed. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's a big problem, and we see it at play as well in Maryland. But one, one of the things that struck me about this, because we follow this pretty intensely here on the Mark Steiner Show, is one of the issues we've been following um, and, and pursuing um, around the Bay and, and what's happened, is that it was kind of shocking to me that that in that for like over four years, as the Sun reported, um, uh, the largest poultry and livestock farms, uh, at least a third of them, uh, were not required to pay the state mandate, mandating uh, measures to control polluted runoff in their farms that you saw. Um, the emails that were exposed by Food and Water Watch um, between the governor and the attorney for Purdue during uh, the, during this during this time, and also with the phosphorus management who were putting that off. One of the things that shocked me was that um, I, I remember covering this, and I remember how there was an agreement, and farmers were at the table, and you know, big ag was at the table, and and environmentalists were at the table, and they came to an agreement, and then decided to push it off again. And then it got pushed all the way over to Hogan, which was able to water it down even more. And I think, Gerald, I mean, that's the kind of thing I think that 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 um, that doesn't speak. I mean, that, that raises questions that need to be answered. I, I think it's really an Achilles heel for this uh, his candidacy for president. When you really <clears> look <throat> at his environmental platform and what he did under a microscope, there's certainly pluses. There's no doubt about it. He's not like an Inhofe, a climate denier. Right. Absolutely he's, not. He's, he's not, you know, a, a, a wild guy that wants to destroy the environment. I mean, he did some good things. But on the other hand, everything, in my opinion, the real problem was it was a political agenda that what he did was just enough to curry the credentials to move himself forward for the presidency. I thought he was running for president the day he was running for the first time for governor you know, way back in 2006, and it, it, it just smacks you in the face that you got to go through Iowa. Where did he go right after he announced he's running for president formally at Federal Hill in Baltimore in his home turf? He went to Iowa. And how are you going to curry voters in Iowa to pick you so you get some momentum in that primary out there unless you curry the agriculture support. And that's the answer to why he didn't collect the fees of 400000 a year on the largest animal operations in the state of Maryland. I mean, raising one million or more chickens a year, thousands of cattle. And the reason is, is when his agencies didn't have enough money to enforce stormwater and other laws and didn't collect these fees, as was, as, as was reported, is because he didn't want to aggravate anybody in the agriculture community and therefore catered, not not to just because it's good for business in Maryland, but because he wanted those credentials to run for president and raise the money necessarily from the agribusiness community and have the big splash out in Iowa and the farm states. That's what's so sad about this, this governorship. He could have been a, a great environmental governor when he was just you know marginal in the sense that he didn't do the necessary things. And when you look at the test... How is our oyster population? How is the crab population? How are the populations of, of, of the shad? How, how are we doing with people getting infectious diseases and almost killing them from coming in contact with bay waters and meeting our standards for recovering bay grasses? We're doing poorly. There's no real sign of any improvements in most eastern shore rivers, and some have actually gotten worse. And it's the same on the western shore where we see some signs, especially with sewage treatment. So what you see is him when the budget was tight, taking 
money from open space that's our main land preservation program and taking it at the plug holes in the operating budget to hundreds of millions, something he criticized Governor Ehrlich before him for doing. And that was supposed to be replaced by bonds, but it hasn't been replaced. And the new governor comes in and says, we're not going to issue these bonds anymore. So cost program open space, hundreds of millions of dollars. So we'll never replace that land ever that we could have purchased. And the final thing is on enforcement. There was a report and a filing, actually, which is really embarrassing, um, by the river keepers that actually f- filed the um, a petition to the EPA to take away Maryland's inf- uh, Clean Water Act enforcement because they documented in a in a scathing report that the state had enforcement actions had declined under O'Malley in his um, first couple of years by 23 percent in 2009 and 89 percent of permittees used to be inspected, and the inspections went down to 20 percent. And I think there's a clear format there. Don't antagonize industry. Don't antagonize the farming industry. Don't antagonize businesses because you're trying to run for president. You need street cred, and you're raising money as well. So it's it's disturbing to me to see a, a Democratic, supposedly green governor, be lax on enforcement, be lax on agriculture. And then finally, when you come to stormwater, there's there's clear articles that have been done in do- demonstrating that they weren't even the state Maryland Department of Environment wasn't adequately inspecting the state's counties um, stormwater management programs because they said they lacked funds and the, and the and the local governments may not have been been enforcing effectively the stormwater management laws that we have. So so g- g- going back to the, the as we round this out to the beginning of the conversation, uh, Tommy, I, and I was just just reflecting to reflect a bit on what Gerald was saying. And we're talking about Governor Martin O'Malley as the environmental president. I mean, what what it, it is it, it, it from what Jerry Gerald is saying. I mean, it's it is it's, it's a mixed record. So, I mean, how would you how would you respond to that? Well, one thing I would also say, um, if, if it's not obvious to a lot of your listeners, is that you know climate change threatens to undermine a lot of the progress, if not all the progress that we're making to clean up the Chesapeake Bay because of warmer waters, higher sea level, um, and other impacts. And uh, that, you know, that keeps me up at night. That's a big concern. Um, and I, I guess, honestly, right, I can't speak to exactly what uh, Martin O'Malley's intentions have been, but my impression and my, my boss, my Kidwell's impression, have been that, um, that he also has trouble sleeping at night because of climate change. I mean, we saw him working uh, hand-in-hand with his staff at, at the highest level to make sure that we did whatever it took to pass a lot of these um, foundational landmark bills on climate change and clean energy. Um, and I, I won't deny that there's been a lot of frustration, especially issues that Gerald has mentioned. Um, but, you know, I, as a Marylander who grew up here, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that Arnhem Alley has put Maryland where we are in terms of climate change. A lot more work to do and, and had some big bumps on the, on the road in the way. But, um, but I think we're in a pretty good spot, but, and we still have, have to build on that progress. And th- 30 seconds, Jerry, final thought from you as well. Well, on the Chesapeake Bay, one of the things that Governor O'Malley touts is that after a couple of years, the legislature, with his support, passed the Chesapeake Bay 2010 Trust Fund. Uh, that was about seven years ago. And that fund had dedicated funding sources from uh, the car rental fees and, and uh, gasoline tax, a very small percentage that were to go to these grants to agriculture as well as to communities and stormwater systems around the state. And that fund was to generate about 50 to 70 million a year, at least 50 million. Well, guess what? When he was in, during the time he was in, 
that fund took, they took his administration almost $160 million to plug the operating budget from the, what the legislature passed. And then he only spent $169 million was allocated. So he almost took half of the funds during a seven-year period out of that critical fund for the Chesapeake Bay. And secondly, when it comes to stormwater, the, a legislative committee was appointed to look at what we're going to do on the flush tax. And that was begun under Governor Early because it was going to run out of money. They recommended a tripling of the $30 a, 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 a year fee to $90 over time. And the extra 30 to go to 60 was necessary to upgrade the plants. There wasn't enough money, the sewage treatment plants. Now, this was under Governor Early, but the money needed right. to be doubled. He supported that, but he did not support the 90. And that extra 30 was to go to stormwater management, which would have really gone a long way to help solving our problem. I'm going to thank you both. And I hope our listeners get some enlightenment here from very different perspectives on where Martin O'Malley is and his record on the environment and his running as the environmental president. <clears throat> we'll clearly be covering this a great deal more as we will as we have here on the Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites. I want to thank former State Senator Gerald Weingrad and Tommy Landers, who's now the Maryland D.C. Policy Director for Chesapeake Climate Action Network, for joining us. Gentlemen, thank you both so much. Welcome. Thank you, Mark. We have to take a very brief break, but don't go away. When we return, there's more Soundbites we can look at food, agriculture, and our environment right here on the Mark Steiner Show. When we come back, we'll hear how a riverkeeper stopped the gas pipeline from being built throughout Baltimore County and Harford County. And talk about animals in the context of a new law in New Zealand that recognize animals as sentient beings. to have a conversation with Theo Lagarder, who is the Gumpowder Riverkeeper in Baltimore County. Uh, and uh, Theo has been really key and instrumental in, in the lawsuit he brought against the pipeline being built across Baltimore County. We're about to talk to him about that. Theo, welcome to the Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Mark. Glad to be on. So, Theo, let's talk about this. I mean, I, I've been talking to you about this particular issue, and you've been on here before, uh, about the 26-inch pipeline, this pipeline going across Owings Mills, uh, to Falston from, and you actually took, was it Columbia Pipe Company and MDE in Maryland Part of Environment to quarter just Columbia and Pipeline and had it stopped? Tell us the story. What happened? Well, the, the story dates back to 2012, and so uh, I feel Gunpowder Riverkeeper didn't have much of a choice but to take this to court. Uh, we work collaboratively with various stakeholders through Harford and Baltimore County where the gunpowder, you know, crosses. And, uh, we actually took the Maryland Department of the Environment to court on a weak permit. So Columbia joined Maryland Department of the Environment in... Wait, in let me stop you for one moment. To describe yeah. for our what, what, what do you mean a weak permit? What does that mean? W-E-A-K, I assume. What does that mean? Weak, right. So it, it was a wetlands and waterways permit, but as, as we looked at the permit conditions, we found, and the judge uh, that reviewed the case, found that the permit conditions were vague and general in scope, and they didn't really get specific enough to be protective of the waterways that this pipeline's crossing. So from the beginning, and so this is a pipeline, I mean, I guess the question on pipelines and what, the, what that entails, but exactly, I mean, what, what was it threatening? It's a 26-inch pipe, Mark, so the, the impact is not the actual pipe. It's the construction to get the pipe 
in the ground. So this is a pipe that would not be seen if one was driving across the area. This pipe is going to be buried about four feet below grade and below the streams. But what was important in this permit was that the permit regulated 81 crossings of different waterways. And waterways just aren't streams, but they're also wetlands and seeps and springs, you know, anything that's wet. So we were concerned that the permit was weak and that it did not have specific monitoring requirements to protect water because all of this water shared. I guess the best way to explain it is if you think about the cobbles and bricks down at Fells Point, these waterways are kind of like that. They're, they're all joined together. And sometimes they're joined by a surface stream that you can see with the eye, but more often than not, they're joined with groundwater. All this water ends up in people's wells, and uh, the majority of the streams end up down towards Lock Raven for city drinking water. So that's an interesting point you just said. And I, going back to that, just for just a, a moment before we get into some more detail here, it, when you said that there were 81 waterways across Baltimore County and Hartford County where this pipeline would be going. Yes, and sir. The, the idea that they're all connected, that, that that's really interesting to me, that this is that you see a river, you see a little marsh wetland, you see a creek, and we think of them as separate pieces of water. But you're saying something about how no matter what happens to one can happen to all. Sure. It's, it's, it's kind of a compounding effect. When you think about all of these together, they are connected. And that's been the biggest issue because this project, again, is large, not because of the size of the pipe necessarily, but the size of the equipment that uh, is needed to get the pipe in the ground. So we're talking about 305 acres of disturbance over a 21-mile swath of land between Owings Mills and Rutledge over towards Falston. And that's the real impact is the 75-foot the construction corridor uh, that is cleared before the line is, is put in the ground. And, and this has already affected some people's land. Yes, sir. Uh, a number of Gunpowder Riverkeeper members have actually been taken to court through imminent domain proceedings from Columbia Gas. Uh, they received a certificate of public need and necessity from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission back in November of 14. And as soon as they received that certificate, they were allowed to take people's property under eminent domain powers. So they took a number of folks to court and actually condemned their land to get this pipeline in the ground. That to me is pretty extraordinary. I mean, I, I, the, the, what, you, what you're describing here, I mean, there were, the, what I've been reading, that there were literally dozens, two, three dozen, whatever that number is, of people in Baltimore and Hartford County um, who, who, who did not want this pipeline going through the, across their land and were actually forced to because of eminent domain because, and, and were sued by the pipe company. Yes, sir. So, so, what, what, what's the, what can, so they have no recourse. Well, they, they have tried, and I think that the biggest battle that everyone affected along this line, that is the residents along the line, have had is with the notice issue and not understanding the scale of the project and not understanding how they could enter comments into the public record so that their voices could be heard. And I, and I think the other part of this, too, is it's, is, is important to so many listeners here um, and on our radio program especially the live portion of our program, live in, 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 in Baltimore and in other parts of Maryland, not, not Hartford County or northern Baltimore County. But this is, 
so, but this this particular issue, as you said, this this water that could be contaminated goes into Lock Raven Reservoir, which feeds a huge portion of the water coming into Baltimore City and surrounding areas. Yes, sir. When we initially commented on this on this project, uh, we learned that 37 of 70 waterway crossings were in fact protected by state water laws uh, under drinking water um, designations. So. That means that they're either able to be considered waterways that could input into someone's well or that they ended up down towards Lock Raven. So for, for the city residents that are on city water, you know, one thing that I'd, I'd assure them is water rolls downhill. But the, the short version of this permit is that the Maryland Department of the Environment and Columbia Gas, and, and they're owned by NYSource, Inc., uh, were relying on tilt fences and the like to protect city drinking water. And what we have attempted to do in this court challenge that we won uh, in the Baltimore County Circuit Court is we attempted to ask questions related to why these streams weren't being monitored before the construction, during the construction, and after the construction to make sure that they were in great shape. It's not sufficient to say that they should be in good shape. All of these uh, streams and waterways, Mark, or of national significance. What do you mean? Well, national significance meaning that they have one of the most vi- vibrant uh, fish populations that are wild and native in Maryland. And I'd say that's east of the Appalachians. So as we went through the record of decision on this permit, which was no less than 8,915 pages, we started looking at some correspondence from the State Department of Fisheries that identified these stream areas as Maryland's most significant trout fisheries east of the Appalachians. And fisheries also weighed in and stated that there were a lot of there was a lot of vagueness with the permits and that there was no way to really assess impacts because there was no monitoring. Of the eighty one waterways that this pipeline will be crossing, only one stream out of eighty one was going to be monitored and that was after the pipeline was being put in. So wh- wh- why do you think that occurred? I and mean, wh- where, where is, I mean, as an MDE, the Maryland Department of the Environment, as an oversight agency, where, I mean, th- th- who you took to court um, to revise your permits they were issuing. I mean, wh- wh- how did that happen? Well, that's, that's, it's a tough question. I think it's a better one for Maryland Department of the Environment. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to speak for them, Mark, uh, because, you know, this, we, we, we found a, a judge that made a very well-reasoned and, I think, thoughtful decision. He didn't make a bench decision on this case. He, he handed down a 49-page written decision wow. that remanded the permit or sent the permit back to the Maryland Department of the Environment on three points. And one was public notice. You know, riverkeepers get people to meetings. That's a lot of what we do around the Chesapeake Bay region is we try and get people involved in these kinds of processes. But as I mentioned, the public notice was pretty uh, scant. And I think that now that we're going to have a new meeting, it is helpful uh, for your listeners to know that they, too, can input into this process. They can make this a better project by coming to the next meeting. And that's something that the judge ordered. So, you know, it's, it's important that well, we get some voices from the city and folks that are relying on drinking water to this meeting. And what were the other two points? The other two points, Mark, was that the permit lacked specific information and relied on 
outside sources. So, you know, given we're talking about almost 9,000 pages that the judge had to go through, that we had to go through uh, to make some sense out of this permit, the judge found that these outside sources that the Maryland Department of Environment relied on were other permits and approvals that weren't in the public eye. They were not part of the record of decision. He also agreed that it was impossible to determine whether the permit complied with water quality regulations. More importantly, the Clean Water Act. So, you know, we have federal water law and state water law, and in this case, the judge said, you guys are going to have to go back to the drawing board on this one. You're going to have to make the permit conditions more specific. The last thing that this permit uh, failed in is that there wasn't enough evidence in that long record to support the Department of Environment's decision that the Maryland Historic Trust evaluated the project and determined no historic properties would be impacted. So where does it go now? I mean, so it, I mean, clearly you can't tell. It's not your job, as you said, as you were quoted saying, to tell the to tell Columbia Gas where to put the pipeline. Yes, but, sir. But, but if these are, are sensitive areas and they can contaminate the water, and you've already seen some people reporting that where the pipeline has gone across people's lands, that they may have gone under the stream but destroyed the land around it to get under the stream, then, then what, what, what's the possible outcome here? More stringent permit restrictions. Uh, that is, you know, I, I've never opposed the pipeline per se because it, it is a federal project. And I, I say that it's federally approved. It, it's actually a project from Columbia Gas and Nysource Inc. You know, they have to do what's best for the company and what's best for their shareholders. But river keepers try and do what's best for the environment and what's best for the public at large. So when I talk about that certificate, you know, that they were handed down by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that allowed for eminent domain, it's because the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission decided that this project was in the public interest. You know, our argument thus far in the circuit court has been that water and the high quality water that we all benefit from in the Baltimore metro area is equally in the public interest. This is not a situation where we're fighting natural gas just to fight it. It really is a question of, you know, can we get the benefits from natural gas without jeopardizing the environment and what we have and what we all hold dear in Maryland, which is all of these sensitive waterways, all of this protected land. If, in fact, the judge continues to rule that these lands are too sensitive to allow the, the pipeline to go through, then they'd have to restart the project and reroute it somewhere else, on a highway or somewhere different than, than across lands that have um, all these water byways you talk about. Well, there are two... Up- there have been we've had two appeals, one in the circuit court, which we just won the decision of, of from. And the other is actually in the U.S. Court of Appeals in the D.C. Circuit, which is the second highest court in the land. And that decision will come likely mid-June. And that's uh, Gunpowder Riverkeeper versus the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. What with alleged and, and really asserted in that appeal before the U.S. Court of Appeals in the D.C. Circuit is that Columbia Gas and Nysource Inc. should not have received that certificate to allow them to sue people under eminent domain without the state weighing in on water quality. It's a basic civil rights argument. You know, it, when you think about the Clean Water Act and, and federal law and, and state water law, the state's should have the right because they have a little better idea of how their waters are and and quality and quality to weigh in on water quality. 
But unfortunately, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission gave Columbia that certificate four months prior to them receiving the water quality certification from MDE and and this permit that we challenged. It's cart before the horse, Mark, and, you know, this could unravel if, in fact, the U.S. Court of Appeals agrees that FERC should have waited for more information before they allowed this project to proceed. And that's mid-June. And we'll be covering that with you by mid-June. I wouldn't say, you know, as the gunpowder riverkeeper, Theo, yes, um, who likes being outside and on the water and, and fly fishing and more and, and, and making sure that the water is safe on the gunpowder, which is a huge river that starts teeny out in Baltimore County and comes huge but before it hits, <laughs> hits the bay. It's long... Sure, it's 53 miles of water and <laughs> right. 217 miles of small, small streams. So it's it's a big one. So, but but it, clearly, you're a man who has to uh, delve into the into the minutia of paperwork and legalities to do the work you do. Yes, sir. Well, I've had a lot of help <laughs> with this one, and uh, you know, the Chesapeake Legal Alliance has allowed uh, and provided attorneys uh, to help with this battle, and we have just received uh, notice of appeal on this decision. So it's headed for the Court of Special Appeals, and we're we're prepping for that appeal as early as this afternoon. So I think that, you know, one thing the public needs to know about is that this is something that we're doing to benefit not only our members, but folks that would have a recreational interest in the river, you know, have a drinking water interest in the river. We're doing it because we're finding fault with this permit, and we want this permit to be strengthened so that it is protective of all of those uses. You know, the Clean Water Act talks about swimming as a use and drinking as a use and fishing as a use. Those three uses uh, have been protected since 1972 federally, and we're reminding the state that they have to abide by those protections. We've been talking with Theo Lagarda, who is the Gunpowder Riverkeeper, who brought suit uh, with the Chesapeake Legal Alliance, through the Chesapeake Legal Alliance, uh, to uh, stop or halt a gas pipeline going across Baltimore and Hartford counties that affects the drinking water here in Baltimore. And as Theo was describing, more than that, uh, and Circuit Court Justice King uh, ordered the Maryland Department of Environment to revise a permit uh, that was issued last year and is also away for the decision with the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, when it comes to FERC. And stay on top of this with Theo Lagarda. Theo, thank you so much once again for joining us here on the Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites, and we'll stay on this with you. Thank you, sir. Welcome back, everybody. We are about to have a conversation on this bill that was actually passed not by a state here in the United States, but in New Zealand, which was a New Zealand officials actually recognize animals as sentient beings. What does that mean? Why is that important to us? Brenda Sanders is in the studio. She's executive director of the Better Health, Better Life organization, co-organizer of the Vegan Soul Fest, along with uh, Nigel Wright, who's in the studio as well, and who's also co-owner of Landa Kush. And Brenda Sanders is also one of the directors of Open the Cages Alliance, an animal advocacy organization in Baltimore that holds the annual vegan living program. Good to have you both here in the studio. Thanks for having Thank us, Thank you Mark. for having us. Before we started, Brenda, I said, have you heard about this before? Of course you have. 
being an animal rights activist. <laughs> yes. Talk about what the, what the importance of this thing passing in New Zealand. For me personally, as a person who advocates for animals, I honestly don't feel like the act go, goes far enough. Far enough. Um, but I do appreciate the fact that New Zealand is recognizing that animals being used um, for frivolous things like uh, being tested on um, uh, for cosmetics and, right. and, and skincare and hair care products and stuff is just uh, just beyond ridiculous. Um, and so the act goes to uh, protecting them from those types of things without really protecting them from things like hunting and um, and and of course uh, forced breeding and consumption for uh, um, excuse me forced breeding for consumption and things like that. So, mm-hmm. but it it is a step in the right direction for starting to recognize them as the living, thinking, sentient beings that they are. Yeah, and I think that that's part of it, Naj, was the idea that most people don't think of animals as sentient beings, as beings who feel, <laughs> think, and have emotions, right? And I got to laugh about that because th- that's why the whole thing confused me. Okay, it's a big announcement, but why don't we think that? Okay, if any of us have pets, okay, let, me, let me, I grew up in the projects, okay, when I was young, I saw some kids throwing snowballs at a dog, you know, abuse. The dog was running. Right there, that's a feeling. That's fear. Why would the dog be running? Like, why wouldn't we think animals have feelings and emotions? So I'm just confused. And to Brenda's point, like, yeah, you know, there's there's more to it. We need to add more to that. That's great. But we should have been known now. What's new? I mean, I'm I'm stupefied right now. (laughs) (laughs) Like, why didn't we know that? Why don't? Why doesn't everybody accept that that they are sentient beings? I mean, they've taken a couple levels here. I mean, but why aren't they? Why don't we know that? I mean, we live we live we live in a place where people actually, besides farming, torture animals. I mean, because we don't know, or that that we have dog fighting, we have bull fighting. But we don't know what. We have what. cockfighting, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. But I think uh, by and large, uh, that would even just speak to Americans. The American public would see uh, the injustice in dogfighting. I mean, Michael Vick was labeled a monster for his part, you know, in, in the, the dogfighting. And, and people watch bullfighting videos. And when they see the bull, like, gore, the, the, the matador, right. they, they say, like, you see it all the time, like, well, good for the bull. You know, like, so, so you know, well, oh, he got what that matador got what he deserved or whatever. Um, and so it, it's like if, if so many people are having these kinds of, of thoughts about say you know the the millions of elephants I mean billions of elephants who are being wiped out just for, for the, the ivory of their tusks and we can see that as an injustice then why don't we take it that step further and say okay they're all and, and you know beings who deserve that kind of consideration exactly well why not why do you think that is greed <laughs> capitalism but I mean period. Hashtag period. <laughs> I mean, what else is it? You bite know what I'm saying? Tongue. It's exploit. It's ex- exploitation. You know, yeah. and we can talk about all the type of different exploitations, but it's greed, personal greed, and capitalism. That's it. Uh, look, m- most people in this country, most people who, most people, period, but most people in this country are, in terms of diet, omnivores, right? And they don't have to be. Well, they don't have that's to be. That's a personal that's greed a tr- and personal preference, right? So, <laughs> but it doesn't mean you can, I think what the New Zealand law was saying was that 
you can be an omnivore and still understand animals as sentient beings. You can, yes, In terms absolutely. of how they're raised, how they're mm-hmm. treated, and what mm-hmm. you allow mm-hmm. to happen to an animal and not allow to happen mm-hmm. to an animal. Mm-hmm. That's still an internal personal thing, a personal satisfaction or preference that you want to have. Yes, I grew up loving animals. I didn't have the, I didn't know the association between chickens and, and, and beef and all that due to the factory farm. I was young then. But as you go over and you learn these things and you have this love for animals, you're like, hey, you know, now I can make the connection. You see what I'm saying? And once you make that connection, you're knowledgeable, and then now you can make the decision. Oh, I don't want to do that, or I'm going to do that because I like beef, and I know they're getting killed in the slaughterhouse, but I'm still going to eat my beef. It's still personal. It's still a personal preference. <laughs> and don't get me Gratitude, wrong. You know what is it? Gratitude, You're just self fulfilling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, like, I, I do this advocacy every day, and and so it's clear to me that that there are very concrete reasons why people have this attachment um, to, to these these different lifestyles. It's not. I've never talked to people about animal abuse and had a person say, "Oh, I like abusing animals. Oh, I want animals to die." People don't say that. People don't feel that. But we have these attachments to these lifestyles and so we have an attachment to eating meat because that's a part of our culture that's a part of our family tradition it's something that gives us um a pleasure and and comfort in our times of need and and you know it, it, it's we have an emotional attachment and the food to is, the it tastes good right you know, so if it tastes good it makes you feel good a lot of people are eating because of depression and other mental illnesses and they don't know how to get off of that or where to go to eat something that is good a vegan meal that's right. why we're out there. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm curious what you have learned as an animal rights activist in terms of um, your relationship to animals, how that's changed in your life. Well, it's funny you should ask that because I've never actually had a relationship to animals. And and that's one of the uh, huge differences. You never had pets and all that No, kind of never had pets. Um, as a matter oh. of fact, I grew up in a household that was very anti-animal. My mother had a, a, a fear of animals and she kind of, you know, passed on not the fear so much, but um, like the, the just the, the disconnection from animals. And so I'm not one of the animal rights activists who like always love anim- loved animals <laughs> and, you know, had this revelation. It was more so my social justice work that informed um, uh, my my or, or that changed my view of animals and and a lot of it's a very contentious thing for people because when they find out that I'm doing this animal activism they're like oh so you just don't care about animals you don't care about humans and and that's weird because I, I just I don't think that you have to choose like <laughs> I don't think that as a person who is out there fighting you know for black lives you know fighting for the right of black people and, and women and, and LGBT people or whomever is being marginalized. I'm out there fighting for their right to, to be and to exist. and But that doesn't mean that I can't also choose to not, you know, eat the, 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 the body of an animal. Like, I can do both. I can care about more than one thing at a time. I can multitask, you know, with my caring. <laughs> um, Multi-passions. And, and, 
Right. And and so uh, it, it was through seeing this devaluing of life that is, is happening within marginalized communities and this oppression, this crushing oppression that opened me up to seeing the situation that animals were in and seeing the parallels. And I never try to say that they are one to one, you know, that, you know, some animal rights activists will say, well, animal slavery is the exact same as human slavery or, you know, the animal holocaust is even worse than the Jewish holocaust. And I would never make those kinds of comparisons just because it's insensitive right. for one but but I do see parallels between the devaluing of black lives the devaluing of women's lives the devaluing of gay people's lives and the devaluing of the lives of these other sentient beings I can see it because of my own personal experiences I mean I love pets <laughs> so as I said we I grew up on pets we had mice Cats. I mean, we had a farm in a little project, in a little apartment in the project. So my mom was different, you know. Actually, when I left the apartment, I left her with a cat, and now <laughs> she complains. But you know, she loves that cat. <laughs> so you know, when I started learning about um, how animals were treated, you know, on the farms and and you know the conditions that they had to live in and live through i mean you can see in the eyes you know terror i mean just think of a cow and the baby has to be pulled away from the mother because the 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 mother has to produce milk i mean there's a feeling right there and if nobody can see that then they're missing something so i've been connected to animals since i was young I think this this the whole question of sentient being act is, is is very important, um, and the question of animal rights is very important. And, and, and let me end this part of the conversation today, and we're going to give our folks a round two with the both of you in the next week. Um, because <laughs> I think this is really important. Brenda Sanders, who is executive director of the Better Health Life Organization, uh, and one of the directors of the Open Cage Alliance, along with Nigel Wright, who is a co-owner of Land of Kush, a Afro vegan restaurant here in Baltimore City. Uh, is co-organizer of the Vegan Soul Fest coming up this fall. Yes, September 19th, vegansoulfest.com. I want to thank you both so much. Thank, thank you. you, Mark. And as always, if you have thoughts about today's show, write to us at talk at or tweet me at Mark Steiner. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. To podcast The Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.